Well, if I ask you the question, what is the greatest danger facing you today? What is the greatest danger that faces you today? Perhaps you might think to the recent news article you read or the recent news edition, maybe Fox News or CNN, or maybe a campaign speech you heard from one of the candidates and you've heard all kinds of different things from terrorism to the economy, to illegal immigration, to crime, to unemployment, to perhaps the environment, the breakdown of the family, health care, and so on and so forth. There are all kinds of dangers facing us as Americans and as humanity. Well, I think that many of these things are sobering and valid and even warrant good discussion. I don't think any of them actually qualify for the top spot in terms of danger facing us today. I think there's actually something more imposing, more prevailing, and more prevalent than anything I've named. The greatest danger that actually faces you and faces me today is the danger of false teaching. It is as simple as that. It is what people teach and say about God and believe about God is the most dangerous thing that is facing us today as people. And I realize that just as much as the first service was by and large a home crowd, that we too here today would say, yes, that is true. It's in the Bible. I agree. But I also think at the same time there has been a substantial effect upon our thinking as conditioned by our culture to think that what I just said is at least in some way a bit over the top. A bit, dare I say, ridiculous. A little bit too militant. A little too uptight. After all, diversity is something that is celebrated in our day. In particular, religious diversity is seen as a virtue, not as something that should be eschewed. How can you say that someone's view and teaching about God could in any way rival the dangerous impact of terrorism or increased crime? I mean, after all, how much money do we spend on national defense per year? The, the real issue is theology, preaching, churches. Are you kidding me? Well, if we judge in terms of what the potential impact would be, both to us here as we are alive and then when we die, there's no question. For what weighs the most is not terrorism or the environment or what criminals may do to your bodies. For terrorists and criminals have no jurisdiction beyond your death. But what you believe to be about, true about God actually carries implications not only in this life, but in the life to come. So it weighs far more. Theological conviction in a church's mission statement and what they actually do with Jesus weighs far more. See, the Bible is written with both the presupposition and the explicit statement of having ultimate authority. That is to say, it is the end-all, be-all. It is the Word of God. You see over and over again in the Scriptures, thus says the Lord. This is what the Lord says. The Lord would have you to do this. The authors of Scripture speak as men moved by the Holy Spirit and they write the text that God gives them. God actually inspires, breathes out the text. That is to say the text doesn't have His origin even in, God, even in the men, but actually in God Himself that breathed it out. That is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And throughout the Scriptures, this... Lord God commands humanity to act and then punishes when we don't act in accordance with what He's called us to do. 
God is seen as gracious and kind to reveal Himself and His wishes, and at the same time, just to judge. And even more, His provision of forgiveness through His Son is articulated as the exclusive means of forgiveness in the Scripture. That is to say that Jesus is alone the only means of access to God. Is the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. John 14.6, Acts 4.12. So what we have in the Scriptures is a foundational understanding and articulation that God is the ultimate authority. He alone is atop the org chart. He alone is God. He has spoken clearly through the Scriptures. And even more, His Son is the only means of obtaining forgiveness and access to this God. This is what the Bible says. And to make it say anything else is dishonest. And frankly, you'd be better off starting from scratch and creating your own religion because the Bible is so clear that this is true. So God alone is omniscient. He knows everything. He's supremely good. He's loving and wise. So when we think in terms of dangers, if, if we need to adjust our thinking to be more in line with what God has said, then so be it. We have to change our mind to think like God thinks. And really, that's what we want to do this morning in the book of Jude. So I'd ask you to turn to the book of Jude. It is right before the book of Revelation, which we were in for communion this morning. Jude is one of the shorter books of the Bible, weighing in at a small 25 verses. But the brevity in words does not translate into a lightweight letter. Jude writes with an iron stylist and a heavy heart. His pastoral heart is on full display through his holy hatred of error in his simultaneous compassionate regard for the well-being of his flock. Jude wrote this letter because spiritual error was running rampant in the early church. And you'll see as we read Jude, and we'll go through most of the book, not all of the verses, but most of them, we will see that God is quite serious about error in the church. For instance, let's look at verses 2 through 4. He starts off his letter, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. So, so far, we're off to a great start. This is a warm, fuzzy, encouraging, great letter to receive. We love letters like this. Peace, mercy, love. Yes. But he says in verse 3, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, that is to say, I want to write to you about salvation, what we have in common, the greatness of Christ and redemption, forgiveness, our hope, He says, I felt the necessity to write to you, appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. It says in verse 4, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand mocked out for this condemnation ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude says, I I wanted to write to you, believers. I wanted to write you a great letter and talk about the gospel. It's a good letter to get. I wanted to talk about the faith. But as I was writing that letter, I felt burdened, no doubt, from the Holy Spirit. I felt impulsed. I felt compelled entreating you to contend earnestly for the faith. I wanted to write to you about the gospel and how great it is. But in light of the onslaught 
of error that is encroaching upon the church, I felt I would be better served writing to you and charging you to defend the faith. The term Jude uses is not a passive term. It's an active, intense, engaging, exerting term that calls for committed, dedicated, and engaged Christians to respond. It is an athletic term that would be used to to strive hard. Implicit in the term is resistance, but you're going to go together. You're going to work hard. You're going to strive. You're going to agonize. And even intensifies things by slapping a preposition on the front of it. So it's supposed to be a really intense agonizing, a really intense contending, as the New American Standard translates it, contend earnestly. And we are to understand this command that that you, that is you plural, you contend earnestly is an ongoing command. It's a present tense command. So it's not just for the Christians there who received the faith, but it's for all who have received the faith. Literally, you could translate it, the once for all delivered to the saints' faith. There's one faith and it's been delivered to the saints by God. God has given the faith. That is the body of Christian doctrine. God has given it to the church. And He says, church, here's the faith. And Jude says, I wanted to write to you about how great the faith was, but I need to come around this side and I need to tell you, wake up, you better defend the faith because if you don't defend the faith, we'll have nothing left. So there's a great urgent call to stand up and get in the game and be ready. Because the enemy is not merely engaging in a debate. He's actually engaging in destruction. So we can't be complacent spiritual couch potatoes, reclining and acting like there's no war going on. Jude says, you contend earnestly for the faith. That's the theme of the letter. And by application, it is for all who would claim the faith. All would have to contend earnestly for the faith. God has commanded. This is what Christians should do. Contend for the faith. Well... Who does he have in mind? All Christians. What do we contend for? The faith. And the situation is dangerous. The church is entrenched in it, and Jude gives what amount to three wartime cries for preservation. He's going to say, this is what you need to do to be preserved, to persevere. And the focus is to point our attention on the false teachers, to look at them, and then to look at ourselves, and then look at those who have been affected by the error. The passage breaks down nicely into... These three wartime cries in verses 17 through 23. And I'll give them to you by now by way of preview and then we'll look at them individually. Three wartime cries for preservation. First, in verses 17 through 19, he says, Remember the general's briefing. This is a war. Remember what the general told you. And I'll carry the military theme throughout this because I think it's appropriate in light of what's going on. Remember the general's briefing, verses 17 through 19. Secondly, in verses 20 and 21, remain focused on your responsibility. Remain focused on your responsibility. Then verses 22 and 23, refuse to leave anyone behind. So remember the general's briefing. Remain focused on your responsibility and refuse to leave anyone behind. Well, let's go ahead and read the text together in verses 17 through 23. You'll see how that outline works together. Verse 17, But you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, In the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lusts. 
These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask you this morning to grant illumination, even as we look at the text, you'd make appropriate application to our lives, that you would instill in us faithfulness to contend earnestly for the faith. It is your faith. It is your church. And we are yours. We've been bought with a price. Therefore, Lord, let us glorify you in our bodies. Let us be men and women who are faithful to do what you've called us to do for your glory. We pray these things. Amen. Well, let's look first at the general's briefing. Remember the general's briefing in verses 17 through 19. And right away, I want to acknowledge and concede that I think there's a little tension even in a, in a passage like this. And, and frankly, I picked the sermon. I picked the text. I wanted to, I've been wanting to preach this sermon on a Sunday morning for a long time. So, I mean, I've, I'm asking for it if there's tension. But I think it's necessary. Because there's some of us here today, and I, I, I'm sure even in the service, that there are people here who are thinking, this, this is a little bit too militant, this is a little bit too overboard. I mean, come on, you're, you're sounding like a general or something, like going to war. And come on, this, this is religion. This is where we go to be refreshed. I mean, come on, after all, things have evolved since Jude's day. They've calmed down, perhaps maybe at that time. I mean, they, weren't they burning people back then? They're not doing that now. And this is precisely why we need this sermon today. We need this passage today. We need Jude chapter 1. Because there was obviously a complacency and an accelerated tolerance in the church where Jude was writing to. Or else, why would he have to write him a letter and tell him they better contend for the faith or they lose the faith? There was complacency. There was tolerance. There was diversity. After all, the false teachers walked right in the door and infiltrated the church. Jude uses languages that they're like hidden reefs in the water in your love feasts. You don't even see them, but they're right there. He says, they're in your building. So if you are, are sitting here thinking, oh, come on, we don't need this today. After all, we're Americans. This is the Bible Belt. I mean, or at least we're one of the buckles on the Bible belt somewhere. We're in Nebraska. You, you are lulling yourself to sleep under the illusion that everything is fine and the enemy is asleep because you need this text to wake you up. Because Jude says, you remember. You remember. They said it would happen. So Jude reminds them to be vigilant. So I would bounce the ball to you, and if the shoe of intolerance, of the shoe of tolerance, indifference, and complacency fits, then you need to wear it. You need to make a change. That's what this passage is calling for. It's the Bible's clear command to not forget, not be surprised, not fall asleep, and not to be hypnotized or lulled to sleep, but instead to remember the Word of God. Look at verse 17. But you, beloved, are to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he quotes a passage. You know who he quotes? Peter. Flip back to 2 Peter chapter 3. And, and, and Peter and Jude, a lot of parallels. A lot of the same types of stuff. So keep your finger in Jude. Jump back a couple of books. 2 Peter 3.3. 3. Peter's in the midst of this 
long explanation of the false teachers, and he has some very explicit terms to use for them as well. Peter says in 3.3, Know this, first of all, that in the last day, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Here's Peter saying, Church, guess what? They're coming. They're on their way. They've mobilized. They're coming, and they have a purpose. And they're going to follow after their own lust. They're mocking, and they're questioning Jesus, but they're coming. So watch out. Keep your eyes peeled. You can flip back to Jude. So Peter says, look forward. They're coming. They're coming. And Jude says, just like Peter said, they're coming, they're coming, but they're not coming. They're here. So just as Peter said they're coming, Jude says, now they're here. So he says, this is no surprise. You should remember the words that have been spoken by the prophets, the apostles. And it wasn't just Peter. The apostle John did the same thing. The writer of the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, 4, 6, 10, and 12, he talks about apostasy. Paul's letters are repeatedly filled with exhortations both to the leadership of the church and the church body to stand firm in the faith. You recall the shoreline sermon by Paul as he's waiting to sail away to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Be on guard, he says, for yourselves and for all the flock. Well, why would you be on guard if there's not an enemy coming? And that's what he says, among which whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. And then he says in verse 29, I know, certainty, Paul says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So we have Jude here going back, pointing back to the apostles. And that would be in their mind. Oh, yeah, Paul talked a lot about this. Oh, yeah, he's quoting Peter. We know that. Peter said they were coming. Paul knew exactly what was happening. And now here they are in the, in the time of Jude, and they're there. They're there. They've crept in under the radar, so somebody's been sleeping at the wheel. There's been some tolerance. There's been some passiveness. There's some, some believers who are reclining in the spiritual recliner, and they're not paying attention. And meanwhile, they look up, and they got the place surrounded. They've denied the grace of God, the... Lordship of Jesus Christ and true sanctification and they are going at it and they are rewriting the Bible and they are attacking core doctrines of the faith. And Jude says, you need to contend. It's time to stop being lazy and start contending. But you need to remember that this is not a surprise. This is, this is something that has been going on. And even though it's, it's not, even, not even a surprise, it's not even a surprise to New Testament because Jude actually reaches back all the way to Genesis. And then he kind of puts his arms around Genesis and all the way to their current age and puts it all together as a big sandwich. And he says, this is really what's been going on since the beginning. He says in verse, verse 5, he talks about pulling them out of Egypt. So now you're the nation of Israel, early time, Exodus. And then look at verse 7. He, he references Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed. And even more in verse 11, he talks about Cain. In verse 11 again, he talks about Balaam and then Korah. You remember Balaam, he actually enticed the people of Israel to follow after prostitutes and idolatry to the point when Phineas in chapter 25 checked the plague with his spear. It says in the, later on when, when, when Balaam was found murdered on the siege, that God was pleased because he had they'd drawn out those people after these false teaching. 
So it's as if Jude is saying, hey, this is not just isolated to the New Testament church. This is something that has been going on ever since God has revealed Himself. There has been an assault on the truth. All the way back to Cain, and you can bring in Korah and, and Balaam, and you can even look at Sodom and Gomorrah, and all throughout history, and then the Apostle Paul, and then even the Apostle Peter and John and Hebrews and all this stuff all together. You push it all together, it's a war on the truth. That's what's happening. So Jude says, don't think this is something new. This is the whole tenor of the Bible. It's the whole tenor of Scripture. There has been attacks on the truth. To read the New Testament is to understand that the attacks against the truth of the gospel are as real as the truth of the gospel itself. If you don't think the attacks are real, you probably don't think the gospel's real. The attacks against the gospel are as real as the gospel itself. You might say, well... That was then. This is now. It's, things have gotten a lot better and we're, you know, ostensibly Christian culture, right? I mean, it, it's not that bad today. We are different culturally, yes. The truth is the same. The attacker is the same. We just have different faces. The different heresies that were fought early on are still being fought today. Yes, we have Jehovah's Witnesses. Yes, we have Mormons. Yes, you have uh, Gnosticism. And yes, you have antinomianism, which says that you can go and do whatever you want. You can deny the gospel. You can pervert the grace of God. You can live in licentiousness. All these things that would deny the lordship of Jesus Christ. Yes, they are going on today. But then there are other things. And I would say even worse. Even as Scripture says, things will get worse. Things are even worse today. Even I've been in Omaha 12 years. I've been a Christian for about 10 years at that time. And even when I got here, there were churches that actually preached the Bible, somewhat, who now are actually featuring books and videos and writings and recommending resources of people who would deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, the need for penal substitution, the need that He actually died on the cross to affect the payment of a penalty. There are people that underestimate, underemphasize sin, redemption, the clarity and perspicuity of the Scriptures, the authority of the Scriptures. All of these things are being de-emphasized. There are people that would say that the atonement of Christ is cosmic child abuse. It is unloving. People would say the Bible is not clear. You can't really know for sure if this is sin or that sin. There are some that are even flamboyantly liberal that are trying to rename the Trinity and make Jesus the Queen. I think they should probably check with Jesus because he actually has a tattoo that says King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he's coming back with it. This is just a sampling of attacks, but the Bible clearly says these things will happen. They're an attack on the person of God, the person and work of Christ, the revelation of God in the Scriptures, and how we are punished, how we are redeemed. But in the midst of this, even today, we would read the Scriptures and say, Jude was hearkening them back to what the Apostles said. So we would say, oh, in the midst of this, hey, we know that this is a sovereign God. He knows none of these things take Him by surprise. He has communicated these things. It is clear. We know these things are true. We knew these things are going to happen. So we could sit back and say, oh, the wisdom of God, the power of God, even in the midst of this, He contends. He drives His church forward. We can take heart. People tend to minimize the need to contend for the truth, the presence of false teachers, and the devastation that error produces. However, to ignore it does not solve the problem. Jude was not looking for them to just tip their hat and say, oh yes, there's a problem, and then go back to sleep. He actually wanted a response 
to contend earnestly for their faith. So what Jude does is hearken a warning to his local parish. He rings the bell of discernment loudly in the ear and he says, don't get drowsy, church. Don't become complacent. Don't forget this is nothing new. The apostles have been warning you. I echo their charge. Remember what they've said. Remember it's a war. And remember you have a responsibility. So the first wartime cry for preservation is to actually remember that this has been predicted. God knows what's going on. And now we turn to the briefing from the general. I'm sorry, that was the briefing of the general. We turn now to our responsibility. What is our responsibility in light of what the general has said? In light that God has said this is going to happen. Now what are we to do? What is our responsibility? Verses 20 and 21. But you... Beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. I really like the book of Jude. Even Peter tend to identify with those guys. I think they they probably were were passionate guys. And you see Jude, particularly, he's, he's not happy about what's going on. He's rather intense. People are compromising the Word of God in favor of their personal preferences. The church is being infiltrated by subjectivity at the the expense of objectivity. Lives are being destroyed. The very fabric of Christianity is being stretched and potentially ripped. And Jude's calling for urgent and drastic measure. And when I read Jude, I I kind of get wrapped up in it and and I envision kind of a Phineas-type response. It's like, let's go, let's get after it, storm the beach, right? Kind of Rambo-esque. What do we have? Jude says, okay, let's get down to your responsibility. And he says, settle down, cowboy. Settle down. Look what it says. This is serious, and you have a responsibility. And really, what he articulates is a surprise to me. It's studying, and I've read Jude many times, reading through it in the flow, continuing to read through it, is a surprise when you first read it, because he's so intense out of the gate. And what he basically does is bracket the beloveds in verse uh, 3, and then all the way at the end in verse 17. But you, beloved... And in between those two brackets, there's no commands for the Christian to do anything. All he's doing after he says, contend earnestly for the faith, and then he comes to the remember, is just say, this is what they do. He's pointing at them all. And he's, he's calling them out by all their stuff. And then he comes back and he says, but you, beloved. So now he's going to tell us what to do. and say, all right, what does it mean to contend earnestly for the faith? And what, it ha- what we have in this passage is one verb, and then you have three participles underneath it, so he explains how, how, how we're to do it. And if you have a New American Standard Bible, it really is helpful in the way it's translated, because verse 21 gives you the verb. Verb, you all keep yourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That's the verb. And then you have the, all, the present tense statements, building yourselves up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and waiting anxiously. So we are to keep ourselves in the love of God, Jude says. This is our responsibility. Well, what does he mean? What does it mean to keep yourself in the love of God? Well, it's simply to walk in the truth. It's to live a life that is characterized by obedience to the Word of God. It is to be calibrated by the truth and to live faithfully in accordance to the truth. God is actively loving us and keeping us in the truth, but we are to be actively loving Him and walking in the truth. Remember John 15.10, Jesus said, If you... Keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, or you will continue in my love. And we know the issue with those who are opposing the faith is they are not walking in the truth. That's the whole problem. So he says, you keep yourself in the love of God. You continue in the truth. 
In sharp contrast to those who would not be walking in the truth, Jude says, Beloved, you walk in the truth. You keep yourself in the love of God. Well, how? How do we do this? Like I said, there are three statements he, he gives us underneath that to help us understand this. First statement, he's building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Building yourselves up on the most holy faith. The word here gives us a nice word picture. It's a powerful picture for us. It's used to describe construction, particularly of a home. Believers are to be built up. They are to be structured. They are to be fortified. They are to be growing. When we come to Christ, we are really, in essence, spiritual newborns. We don't know much of anything except the gospel, which is, in fact, everything. But in terms of growing and understanding the truth, the body of doctrine, the faith, we are to be growing because as toddlers, spiritually, we're full of energy and we're lacking discernment and wisdom. I think of the little kids. My kids, we have a, a fire in the yard and, you know, the little two-year-old Lexi, or I guess when she was probably six, ten months or whatever age kids are when they start walking, I forget, probably a year, and she just starts walking over to the fire. She's like, ooh, light, heat. You know, she's going to walk right into it. You know, no, lacking wisdom, discernment. Pull her back from the hot fire. So God wants you and I to grow. He wants us to be growing up. We're to be being built up. He's not interested in keeping us in spiritual pampers and drinking out of sippy cups. He actually wants us to grow up and to grow into men and women of faith, to be strong. We're to graduate from kindergarten and we're to begin to eat some solid foods. That's how we contend for the faith. We're to grow. Well, grow in what? What is the content? What does it say? Building yourselves up in what? The most holy faith. That again is the body of doctrine that we are to be contending for. It would make sense if we're going to be fighting for something, we better know what that something is. You can't just walk around. I know somewhere it says that uh, Jesus, yeah, He's God. Yep. No, He's not. Okay. Uh, watch the Huskers. Yeah, I mean, what are you going to do? What is that? You're not contending for the faith. You're supposed to know. Okay, I understand He's God. This is why He's God. I understand what Colossians says. I understand what Hebrews says. I understand what Matthew says. I understand what John says. I understand these things. And I, all right, let's talk about it. Let's open up the Bible. Grow in the faith. We're to be growing in the body of truth. They tear down the faith. We grow in the faith, Jude says. But you notice the reflexive nature in it? It doesn't say build your neighbor up, your wife up, your kids up, though all those things are true. Building yourselves up. It's, it's build yourself up. We are responsible to make sure that we grow. I'm responsible for my growth. You are responsible for your growth. This is a command from God that you actually grow and that you are affecting your own spiritual growth. You're reading your Bible and understanding the Bible. You're growing in theological understanding and application and wisdom and knowledge. Not just getting book smart, but you're actually getting heart smart. It's growing and affecting you. We understand from Philippians 2 that we are to work out our salvation from fear and trembling for it is God that is working in us. We believe in monergistic salvation, that God actually does it all by Himself. He saves us, but sanctification, we're doing it and God's doing it. We're working together. It's synergism, if you will. God is growing and working through us. and In one sense, He's sovereignly doing it and giving us the taste to do it. But He's working in us and we're working out. That's how He does it. Charles Spurgeon said that some people in his congregation could write the word damnation on the dust on their Bible. Do you get up on Sunday morning and go, 
Sort of clean it off. That's what I do with my shoes. I didn't wear them all week. I got up this morning, cleaned them off. I, my, I, it's better to clean off your shoes than your Bible. Okay, that's the point. That's the point of that. You, you shouldn't be able to write damnation on your Bible. You could write dirty shoes on your shoes. That's fine. But don't write damnation on your Bible. If you're doing that, you need to get in the book. We need to be growing. Now, what is the occasion? Is it just on the weekends? All right, we get IBS on Wednesday. I'll grow on Wednesdays and Sundays, right? That's the time? No. Building yourselves up. It's a present imperative. You are to be continually growing yourself up. Present, part, present participle. You are continuing to grow. It is ongoing. You never stop growing. As long as you're alive, you're growing because you're not conformed to the image of Christ. So you must continue to grow and conform. It's not just building yourself up when you have time. It is building yourself up and making time. It's not to say, well, when I get older and get settled down and have a wife and kids, then I'll start studying the Bible. Or when you get married, it's not to say, when my kids get older, I'll start studying the Bible. It's not to say, when I get a better job, then I don't have to work so many hours, I'm going to start studying the Bible. Or when I get healthy, I'll start studying the Bible. No, it's you start studying the Bible right now. You start knowing it and growing it and put your nose in the book and memorize it and love it and delight in it. That's what it's a call to do. That is how we are to contend for the faith. You are to keep yourself in the love of God. And one way you do this is by building yourself up in the most holy faith. Because a careful and consistent study of the word immunizes us against, immunizes, that's how you say it, immunizes us against the errors of the apostates. Let me ask you a question. How, how are you doing with that? Building yourself up. If you're a Christian, how are you doing with building yourself up in the most holy faith? Are you more spiritually fit than you were last year at this time or last month at this time? What is God teaching you? What are you doing? Do you have a spiritual growth plan? What type of doctrine are you trying to learn this year? What books of the Bible are you going to read through? Are you going to memorize any scripture this year? What kind? Why? What are you teaching your kids? What types of things do you want to teach your kids if you have them? Or your wife? Or your sister or brother or your neighbor? What types of things do you want to teach yourself? What type of books do you want to read? Do you want to grow? Because the best way to stay the same is just to do what you're doing right now and we'll see you in a year and you'll be the same person. Grow. Build yourself up. Is what Paul is what Jude says. Build yourself up. Because if we're lazily lounging in our spiritual recliner, we're just lulling ourselves to sleep. Spiritual couch potatoes, sitting around, acting like nothing's going on. We become more vulnerable to error. And men, if you have children, your children become more vulnerable to error because of your laziness. If you're not building yourself up in the truth. And oh, God may be gracious and keep you in a church for the next 40 years that is proclaiming the truth. But maybe that church goes off the deep end. Then what do your kids do? They go off the deep end too? Now let's, let's raise some kids that will defend the faith. Study the Bible. Study the truth. Does it strike you odd that many pastors today don't, never mind not wanting to study doctrine, they don't even want to talk about it? But this isn't just for pastors. This is for all Christians. Study the truth. Everyone is to be studying the truth. 
We're to study the Bible in an in-depth manner that we might be spiritually fortified. Not to be walking around as spiritual weaklings, 98 pounds being blown over, being cast here and there by every wind of doctrine. We're actually be able to, should be able to stand and give a defense of the truth. We're called to be able to handle ourselves doctrinally. We're called to be able to take a punch. I remember as a young kid, I was only five years old the first time I got punched in the face. I said the first time. Happened a lot as a kid. And um, I remember I was walking home from school, and, and this guy, he didn't like me or whatever. He wasn't trying to take my lunch money. He just didn't like me. And we were walking. And uh, I'm walking home, and, and he just turned and started yelling at me. And I'm standing there, and he just whack right, right in the face. And I literally, I'm five, you know, right down. I think he was second grade. So he was, what, seven? You know, overmatched. He knocked me down. And I'm on the ground. I'm like, what is going on? You know what I heard? My dad on the front steps yelling, Eric, get up! Get up! He's yelling at me, get up! I'm like, well, if I don't get up, I'm getting another one of these for my dad. (laughs) So I got up and we'll cut the illustration from there because it won't edify. But Jude, you know what he's saying? You know what he's saying? He's saying, get up. Get up. Don't stay on the ground with the pebbles in your nose. Get up. Study the truth. Do some spiritual crunches. Get rid of your belly. Get some, get some intensity in there. Do some push-ups. Have a pump. Know the truth. You carry this illustration all the way to the end. Be spiritually fit because you need to use it. Because you're not going to charge the battlefield in diapers in a blanket and expect to, to, to win for the faith. Well, you laugh, but it's true. We approach our Bible like children. There are spiritual predators roaming this world, motivated by what the devil wants to do. And God says it's the most dangerous thing, and we sit around and we act like we're in the kingdom. We can sit around and everything's great. No, Al. Be able to take a punch be able to grow, have some fortified resistance, know the truth, be able to give a defense of the truth. Furthermore, he says, praying in the Holy Spirit. So we are to be able to to grow, and we are also to be praying in the Holy Spirit. Well, we know what prayer is. Prayer is actually to pray, to talk to God, to talk about who He is, our needs, pray for other people. Pray for His truth, pray for His church, pray for yourself. Pray that you would know more truth. So it's, it's, you're in prayer. You're continuing in prayer. Again, this is present tense. You're always to be praying in the Holy Spirit. And the sphere is the Holy Spirit. That is, again, you are calibrated by the, the will of God. The Holy Spirit prompts you to pray. I love the quote by Lloyd-Jones. He says, never resist an urge to pray. If you have an urge to pray, the Holy Spirit did that. Satan doesn't prompt you to pray. If you have an urge to pray, stop everything and pray. Pray and don't stop until you want to be done. Pray. So keep praying. He prompts you to pray. He mediates our prayers. We're praying in the Spirit, being controlled by the Spirit, according to the will of God. A great example of this is Epaphras in Colossians. says that he labors earnestly for you in his prayers. The same word for contend. He contends for you in his prayers. Oh, it's good to know you have friends that contend for you in your prayers. Epaphras cared more about their sanctification and their contending for the faith than apparently some of them did. 
So even if you have friends that may be weak in faith, you were to, to pray for them, contend for them, that perhaps God would strengthen them. And prayerlessness is nothing less than a declaration of personal sovereignty, a refusal to submit to the will and work of God. It is to act like we got it all under control and we need no help. To, to be, declare yourself to be glorified. How ridiculous is that? We don't pray because we don't think we need to and we don't think God is able. We pray because we think we need to and we believe God is able. The best tool at your disposal is prayer and Bible study. There's no match to communion with God in prayer and to spend time in His self-revelation. That will oppose apostasy and false teaching. And it will give you personal resolve to contend earnestly for the faith. Then he says, thirdly, you, you have to build yourself up in the most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, and thirdly, watch, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. Waiting anxiously. There's something to be anxious about. It's about Him coming and excited about Him coming back. The relief and final vindication of Christ. Christians are people who love His appearing, who wait eagerly for His appearing. Unbelievers, as Revelation says, cry for the rocks to cr- fall on them when He's coming back. Because anything would be better than to have to stand before the Almighty King as He comes back. The New Testament pictures Jesus as ready to come. Ready to come at any minute. James says He is at the door. He's he's in the peephole, guys. He's ready to come. He's going to kick it down and come back at any minute, any time, maybe now. So we are to anxiously wait for Him to come back. Continually, we never stop. It is our private duty to continually find ourselves looking forward for Christ's coming. And it says that it leads to eternal life. Waiting for the return of Christ in the mercy that comes that leads to eternal life. That is, that He had already purchased our eternal life. He had purchased our forgiveness upon the cross. And He is going to come back and He's going to bring us to Himself and He is going to punish all those who do not submit to Him in the Gospel. So we know that He is coming back. We know that He is coming back soon, and we are to wait anxiously for it. So there's an inward look to spend time in the Word, to spend time in the truth, looking at the character of God in the Word, and developing our character in the Word. So there's an inward look in. There's an upward look in prayer. And there's a forward look to the return of Christ. So you find yourselves in the Word, you find yourself praying, and you find yourself looking for the second coming. That is keeping yourselves in the, in the love of God, and that is what He calls us to do to contend earnestly for the faith. So we are to remember the General's briefing. They are coming. We are to remember our responsibility. And thirdly, we refuse to leave any behind. And this is in verses 22 through 23. Tenor here in the last two verses is that of increasing intensity. As we go through, there's three groups of people identified. Most would agree that there are three here. And they just, the level of intensity and the apostasy is intensified as they go through. But in each group, there's a responsibility for the Christian. It says in verse 22, And have mercy on some who are doubting. Have mercy. We're to be people who show mercy. Have mercy on some. It says, who are doubting. These are people who are confused. They're not yet convinced of error, but at the same time, it appears they're not convinced of the truth either. They're beset with inner doubting. James used the same word to say that people are double-minded, vacillating between two. They go whatever, whatever direction they're dragged. 
Jude says, reach out in loving, compassionate, tender mercy, but you reach out with the truth. I think evangelical churches are filled with folks like this. Even in this city. Perhaps we have people here. People who are, are doubting. They're, they're not really settled down on what the truth is. They're, they're between two opinions. They're not convinced solidly about anything. They're between convictions and they are susceptible to error. Jude says, reach out to them in mercy. I think this whole section here, this last two verses, these last two verses troubled me more than anything else in this text. Because there's a lot of conviction here for me. And I trust since we're all kind of growing up together in the same family, if you will, probably there's some application. Because if you're like me, maybe you tend to look down your nose at people that don't get it. Right? You know what I'm talking about. You believe that about the gospel? You, you, you believe that? How in the world could you deny the Lordship of Christ? How in the world could you d- deny the clarity of the Bible? The authority and inspiration of the Scripture? What? The penal substitution of Jesus? Boy, you are an idiot. That sounds a lot more like condescension, contempt, self-righteous Phariseeism than it does mercy, love. It sounds like one who thinks that what they have is because they've achieved it rather than been given it. Everything I know about God is because God has revealed it. And everything you know that's true about God is because God made it known. So why do we boast as if we figured it out? Do you realize that? That every single thing that's true that God that you know about God is because God put it in your head by His grace? And every bit of error that you have is because your heart is, needs to be transformed by the truth? So if anyone is lacking in any area, we're not to sit back and say, Man, why don't you get up to speed? What's wrong with you? Are you an idiot? Say, oh, God, please have mercy. Now, that does not mitigate against the personal responsibility of sin and error. That is our responsibility, and we're all held responsible. But how dare I sit back in my recliner and sit back and say, that Joel Osteen. Now, I'm mad what he's doing, but how dare I sit back and say, that guy is an idiot. I should pray for him. Convicted by that. I hope you are, too. Because we tend to distance ourselves from them. We go into attack mode. Oh, I've had numerous conversations with people about Rob Bell or Doug Padgett or different people in the emergent movement. But how often have I prayed for Rob Bell, Doug Padgett? Mercifully reach out to them and do the opposite instead of distancing ourselves and looking down their nose at them. But these people who are doubting, and I don't think Paget or Olstein or any of those people are doubting. I think those are in the third category, and we'll get there. These are people. That, these are my neighbor, or the, the guy, the co-worker, or maybe a family member. Have mercy and reach out. With the truth, but with mercy. Second category is those, it says, save others, snatching them out of the fire. Verse 23. Now the intensity increases. There's no specific description given. The nature of their plight is identified, though. It's impending peril. The command is, save them. How do you save them? Snatch them out of the fire. doesn't mean that we are the ones who primarily affect their salvation, but it could mean that God would use us to bring about their salvation. 
It would seem here that the fire is an allusion to the coming flames of eternal hell. They, through their abandonment of the faith, are being singed even now by the rising flames of hell. They're standing over the pit. Jude is using a metaphor. They are trusting in the bridge of their own reason. The wood is rotten. The flames are there. They are real. They are about to give way. God's patience will soon run out. So what do you do? Just as a home is burning, you don't stand on the street and say, man, I wonder what I should do. Jude says, charge them. Save them. Snatch them out of the fire. These seem to be people who are more committed to the error. They are convinced that this is the truth. They have departed from the truth. But it's the glory of God and our subsequent love for our neighbor that compels us to care. And frankly, it is the lack of zeal for both that produces indifference and apathy. I'm convicted by this. I don't care like I should, and I don't like it. Hopefully you don't like it either in yourselves. This passage falls uncomfortably on my lap, and I hope it falls uncomfortably on yours too. It should convict us to take part in defending the faith is not to sit back and ridicule and make fun of people, but actually to go and do something and defend them and grab them and snatch them out of the fire. That's what Jude's calling us to do. You're not a defender of the faith if you just sit around and make fun of people. You lovingly pray for them. Speak to them about the truth. Save them, Jude writes. Go get them. They're like Joshua 3, uh, like Zechariah chapter 3. The high priest Joshua snatched a brand plucked out of the fire, as it says, and he is given new clothing. And there seems to be another category here in verse 23. These are not infants in apostasy. These are people that seem to be committed proponents of error. These people know the error and they're committed to it and they want to, they want to do their best to promote it. So Jude ratchets up the intensity here and frankly the graphic comments through this passage. I think it is probably one of the most graphic verses in all of the New Testament, perhaps in the Bible, though Isaiah 64, 6 may be able to trumpet He says, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Jude says, still have mercy. Have mercy on some with fear. Some people see this fear as specifically about the fear of God. And true indeed, we are to to be fearing God when we do everything. But it seems to me that the, the, the fear that he is talking about here is connected to this ordeal of going to talk to these people that are so ensnared. This is dangerous ground that you're going on. Just be careful. They are intimately involved in a movement that is divergent from the biblical faith of the New Testament church. I like what John MacArthur said. He said, unbelief is the distillation of pure evil because it is to argue with pure good. It is to not agree with pure good. And disbelief cuts off any of the strings for potential blessing, reconciliation, forgiveness, or life. So disbelief is not just a, it's not, it's not a virtue. It doesn't just, just cut you off from fellowship at a church. It cuts you off from forgiveness and God and life. So it is evil. So this group, we're, they're more entrenched in error and we're to have mercy. Literally, 
We, this is a command to the entire congregation to habitually and continually extend mercy. And when you extend mercy, you extend the truth. That is how we're to do it. So we don't sit around and shoot the breeze and act like there's no big deal. And we definitely don't try to find a neutral ground. We go and we promote the truth and proclaim the truth. But what does it look like, Jude? What, what, what is with the descriptions? Have mercy on some with fear. Okay, so they're more entrenched in the false teaching. They're more entrenched in the apostasy. We're to, we're to do something. How are we to do it? Jude says, you show mercy and you're hating the garment that's even defiled by the flesh, polluted by the flesh. The garment that Jude is referring to is metaphorically the bottom layer. He's referring to it metaphorically, but what it is in reality, the word he uses is the undergarment. The, the garment that goes up against the skin. It's what we would call underwear today. Furthermore, Jude says that the underwear is polluted, that it's dirty, literally stained, defiled, filthy, nauseating, repulsive, repugnant. There's a lot of words you could throw on there. You don't want to be near it. It's disgusting. It's filthy. You know the picture. It was somewhat, some, somewhat hesitant to talk about it. You want to be guarded and be careful. And, and I'm uncomfortable with even that. I just want to take the text, what it says, and read it and explain it. Because God didn't inspire the thoughts of the text. He inspired the words. And He used the word undergarments. Stained, filthy, polluted. So while it may be easier to ignore stuff like this and try to mark, march in, in cadence with the postmodern group of contemporary culture we're not in step with God if we're doing that so we want to find a passage like this and say okay what does it mean what do you mean Jude what are you trying to teach us and he picks a metaphor that's universally repulsive it's culturally transcendent it was just as repulsive to Jude's readers as it is to us today he wants to communicate the filthiness of unbelief so he says okay what do I use what does God want to use to explain how filthy and ugly and despicable unbelief is in false teaching? And those who emit false teaching from their body, how ugly is it? He says the spiritual emissions from the heart of the unbeliever, specifically those who lead apostasy, are best illustrated by filthy, dirty, nauseating underwear in their subsequent stains. And you are to go into a rescue mission and you are to be aware that the reality of things are that, that that which is emitting from the false teacher, spiritually speaking, is akin to filthy, dirty, smelly, stained, polluted, undefiled underwear. That's what he's saying. And you say, man, it's just unbelief. Jude says, no. It's filthiness. It's despicable. So you who are going on these rescue missions are to act with care as you carefully handle the garments, so to speak. Be careful. Be careful. Be careful, lest you too become polluted and swept up in it. That is his point. We're called to unsettle those who are comfortable in their apostasy. We're called to unsettle them with the truth. It's to be done tenderly, but truthfully, fervently, and faithfully. You cannot leave anyone behind. And providentially, you see how this all works together. Remember the word that is spoken. Okay, what do I need to do? Well, i got to keep myself in the love of God. Well, how do I do that? I spend time in the Word, so I build myself up. I spend time praying so that I'll be further motivated, and I spend time looking forward to the second coming. And now I'm full of the Holy Spirit, and I'm excited. So what do I want to do? I want to go talk to people in error. 
So I'm talking to people whatever, and I'm evangelizing them, talking to them lovingly and mercifully, compelled by the Holy Spirit, telling them about the truth, praying for them, telling them about the coming judgment, and I'm handling it carefully. And now I'm done. Well, what do I want to do? I want to run back over here. I want to spend time in the book. I want to spend time praying. I want to spend time thinking about the second coming. Oh, I'm motivated again. You see providentially how it just all works together. So if you're not motivated to go do that, you're probably not doing this. And if you're not doing that, you're probably not doing this. That's how it all works together. God providentially puts it all together so that people that defend the faith love the faith and they love other people. And in the process of talking with people who cling to impurity, defilement, pollution, you find yourself ever more clinging to the purity and beauty whiteness of Christ and His righteousness and the truth of forgiveness as you look forward to the mercy that's going to be revealed as Christ even comes back. It's uncomfortable, yes. But I'll trade in 80 years of discomfort in this life for eternity of comfort. And I would rather be uncomfortable that someone might be made comfortable than be comfortable that they stay uncomfortable. So we pursue, we go, and we talk. I'm thankful that God has given Jude this word to give first to his readers and now to us clear guidance on how to deal with error and apostasy. We're not to be surprised. It's been predicted. We're not to be inactive. For zeal and effort forge faithfulness. And we're not to be indifferent. For there are so many on the brink of peril. And God may save some of them. And in the midst of this letter, we sometimes miss it. The original readers of Jude, it sounds like they did it. They, they did it. They defended the faith. They stood firm. Subsequent readers, subsequent generations, they did it. They contended. Church history, they contended. They did it. All the way through and up to the Reformation and even now. People are defending the faith. That should encourage you. We're still here. It should give us resolve to do it too. Because at the same time, the assault upon the truth of the gospel has not waned, nor will it, till Jesus comes back once for all and He extinguishes the rebellion with His royal scepter. And that day will be like a match in water and the King will reign. But I want you to look at one thing lest you feel like you miss out on the balance of the way this letter ends and begins. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 1. Because in the midst of this, there's supposed to be some unhealthy tension of the reality that apostates are here and they can pull you away. But at the same time, undergirding all of that is the sovereignty of God to keep His children. Look at the way the letter begins. To those who are called, beloved in God, That's not to say those who are called beloved in God. Well, that's true. Those who are called, those who have been brought to God, those who have been effectually called. And then look, we see the change in verse 17. He says, beloved. But you must remember, beloved. Verse 20, but you, beloved. So the called and beloved, synonymous. And then you have the great doxology, and this is how we'll close here. Remembering our responsibility, yes. Keep yourself in the love of God and go after other people, absolutely. But remember, beloved, the called. Verse 24, Now to Him 
who is able to keep you. Oh, great words in the midst of apostasy. Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before His presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the book of Jude. What a great letter. It is indeed power-packed. We thank you even more for the salvation that comes to us through the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can understand these things. We thank you truly for illuminating our minds and our hearts to the truth to make us see Christ as valuable and see Him as one who is worthy to be worshipped. For true indeed, if it was not for your grace, we would say we have no king but Caesar. But now, by your grace, we say He is our king. We pray for Him to come back. So I pray in light of the work of grace that You've done in our lives already, I pray that You would continue forge our faithfulness in and through the Gospel and to Jesus Christ. Lord, that we love You preeminently. Love You enough to pray and spend time in Your Word, for that is what Christians do. We look forward to Your coming. But Lord, we wouldn't do that without reaching out to those who are entrapped and ensnared, for it only seems right and good, in addition to your word, for those who are about to walk into traffic to be destroyed, must warn them. Though we cannot affect results, we can do what we are called to do, and as to proclaim the truth. I pray, Father, in light of this, that you would keep this church, Omaha Bible Church, faithful, strong, and true, to the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, that we might not wander aside into the dumpsters to find value, truth, and beauty. When you on the narrow road have called us to march faithfully, to find delight in Christ and His gospel, we might find joy, glory, pleasure in that, and that you would refresh us and give us many years of ministry and many years to come of faithfulness, of being a beacon of light even to the world around us. Pray you would do this, Lord, for your glory and for our joy. In Christ's name, amen.